Hey everybody, you are listening to Smart Guy, Dumb Guy. I'm your host, Johnny Morrison, and with us, as always, is Christian Serge. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. Each week and now for the next 23 minutes, we're going to have a conversation about culture, current events, and politics. You know the drill if you've been listening to this for a long time. But the most important part is both sides of the intellectual spectrum. I always like to say I'm the dumb guy because sometimes I just say shits and dams and those guys are idiots. Like I just can't take it. I don't know if that makes you the dumb guy as much like the angry guy. Okay. So maybe this should be maybe this should be smart guy, angry guy. Sure, sure, sure. I'm sorry. I always feel like my go-to emotion is annoyed or sad. I've been having this conversation a lot with my wife because she gets angry. Like that's her go-to emotion. So maybe it's annoyed guy, angry guy, or sad boy, angry dad. How about that one? Yeah, I like. Isn't there like a YouTube channel? Sad guy, angry dad. There's got to be a YouTube channel, probably. No, no. What are those dad ones where they like to like pour whiskey into like uh, a toy? cement truck and then back it up and then pour coke in it and then like let it go into you know like just do stupid things like that like like that's like creative dads Mm, yeah well welcome to the show everybody uh today i watched this video um, that donald trump released and i know you're probably sick of talking about donald trump but this is a really interesting video i watched this 46 minute rant of to me was a guy on the edge of just grasping at strings. I don't know. Did you watch it? I haven't seen the whole thing. Just clips and like news articles and, you know, comedians commenting on it. It was one of those things where he's like, you know, these machines, they're very bad, very bad. And I was winning in Wisconsin. And then three hours later, when they started counting more votes, I was losing. I don't know what happened. I mean, it was just, it was one of those things where it just, I, I don't know how anyone in their right mind can support this guy. And if you're a Trump supporter, I, I'm sorry, I just don't understand it. And I've asked a lot of people to, to help me to speak the truth, tell me what it is, but I just, the guy, come on, dude, you lost, bro. You lost. Is that, first of all, was that your uh, Trump impression that you were doing a moment ago? I'm, tr- I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm <laughs> trying. Hold on. I mean, I knew what it was, I guess. Like, it, you know, it could be worse. I'm trying, I'm trying. I like to do really good impersonations, but there are so many good impersonations. It's like, sometimes when the machines are going and Michigan doesn't like it, then I come in and, and everybody knows it. Well, most people know it. Well, everybody knows it real bad. Bad, really bad things are happening. That's okay. not so bad. Yeah, I, I. Uh, Let's hear yours. Nope, I don't have. I just don't have one. <laughs> Trump is hard. I, I. It's interesting. This is not the question or thing that you brought up, but Trump impressions are hard. I feel like even people who are good at impressions don't do a good Donald Trump very often. The one guy I like is Trevor Noah. I think he yeah. does a really good impersonation of him. Um, or just watching Donald Trump himself. Like I have been watching Schitt's Creek. I'm not quite through um, season six. It just stresses me out. I don't really laugh that much. I have to be honest. But uh, when I watched this video with Donald Trump, I just laughed my ass off. The stuff he says is great. And then it goes to Rudy Giuliani. The Michigan uh, Supreme Court wouldn't see them anymore. They said, look, there's no voter fraud. You have to meet with a commission if you want to have any more grievances first, and they have to give us the approval and say, yeah, they do have something to say, and we'll meet with you. And Rudy Giuliani, and I quote, if you continue to count more votes, I just don't know what's going to happen. 
I just don't understand what that means. It's like, if you continue to count the legal votes, the person you want to win is going to lose. Is that what you're saying? Like, I just don't know what's going to happen. Or when Trump says, these computer machines, they're bad. Very bad things are happening. Great and, and atrocities of, of voter fraud is happening. We need to move to paper ballots. It may take more time, but we need to move to paper ballots. He literally in one sentence said, it's taking too much time to count the ballots. And then let's move to paper ballots because it's going to take more time. Yeah, it's it's it is interesting. Like even um, Bill Barr has said that they have there's no evidence of voter suppression or um, voter fraud with any of these systems yet. And you've seen every major case has been thrown out or defeated or overturned. It's an interesting scenario. I it doesn't feel like it's really working. I, I don't know. I'd be interested to know what. Um, Trump supporters hear when they hear Trump talk about that. Um, like, do they, what is the, what have you seen any stats on what the larger belief about the election is? We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but I haven't seen anything more updated in terms of how many Republicans believe the election was a fraud because of voter fraud. Have you seen anything about that? Unfortunately, no, not because it's, um, I haven't seen it, but I don't think it's there very much because one thing this, election has taught me is really how many spineless senators we have who are not willing to stand for what they believe when they're when they believe that their career is on the line. And now I that phrase alone, I get it. When your career is on the line, you make different decisions. But I think that congressmen, representatives should be different. They should stand up for something, right? Uh, Mitch Romney, Mitch, is his name Mitch? Yeah, Mitch Romney. He was the one guy who stood up and Donald Trump talked bad about him. He's still a senator, but I feel like the senators just need to stand up for something and, and say, this is not right. They're being so vague and so quiet about it. Yeah, I, well, that's why I thought was interesting that um, it's, it's Mitt Romney, by the way. Um, mm. But <laughs> Thank you, dumb but guy. I, I, that's why I thought it was interesting that Bill Barr has spoken a bit more publicly about the lack of voter fraud, where it feels like Bill Barr has, for the most part, been pretty aligned with Trump's legal agendas. So it's interesting that he was one person to say that. And it's interesting, th this actually kind of gets us to some of the topics we'll have today, but it is interesting also that courts, which for such a long time, conservatives have made a focus of their political agenda, getting into the courts, conservative justices who are, mm -hmm. you know, strict constitutionalists or however you want to frame yeah. it. Yeah. But it's interesting that in all of those places in the legal system, Trump is not finding traction, at least in everything that I can read or see, he's not finding traction in any of those places, but there is, um, either what you say, like a lack of courage and confidence or spinelessness on behalf of GOP senators and, um, representatives where they're not necessarily denying Trump's claims yet. It's, it's a weird tension between the two. I'm not, I don't know that I made anything profound statement there, but it's just an interesting tension. No, I think it's interesting <clears throat> to me. The profoundness is in the lack of spines in senators when good men do nothing. Isn't there like a phrase like that? When good men do nothing, we lose our freedoms. Yeah. How does it, how does it go? It's, um, it's something Maybe I just evil. made it up. No, no, you're, you're, you're on it. It's like, um, something like evil prevails when good men do nothing, something like that. Yeah. And I just feel like that is represented here very, very well. I do think you're, you know, overestimating, 
what we should receive or expect of congressional leaders in the United States of America. You know what? I am tired of dumbasses in the government. And I'm tired of Donald Trump being a dumbass. I'm tired of uh, Congress being dumbasses. I want them to stand up for something and I want them to stand up for the other and the marginalized. You know, I, I want them to stand up for, I don't know, something. Everybody seems to be standing up, including Christians, right? They're like, we're going to meet no matter what the stay-at-home orders are. I don't care if there's, you know, a uh, hundred thousand, you know, deaths or whatever. We've got faith over fear. I talked about this last week, but today I think we're talking about uh, Christian and Christianum. Are we having more Christian followers or less? And where's the world going? What path? Mm. Are we going right or left? And that's an interesting segue because the article that I will share in the show notes is from the Atlantic and it revolves around a, a recent Supreme Court ruling about religious gatherings in New York City during COVID. So mm -hmm. New York had put restrictions on religious gatherings uh, because they are, you know, regardless of what you believe with the science, like perceived to be or are incubators for COVID-19, small groups that are, or large groups that are gathering together in enclosed spaces. So they put restrictions on it. That's considered a violation of religious freedom, according to conservative legal scholars, conservative Christians, and the whatnot. So it works its way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court rules in favor of religious freedom. Now, that's interesting in and of itself, but it actually kind of gets us back to the point that you made both in the segue and before, which is, um, what does this conflict reveal to us about the nature of Christianity in the United States? You have these two groups or more groups that are kind of opposed in this moment, conservative Christians and uh, just the rest of America, they both believe they're standing for something. But what does that mean about like the nature of Christianity in the United States, the nature of America as like a Christian nation, quote unquote, um, and then the nature of the conflict that's ensuing between conservative Christians and the rest of America? Like what will that lead to? I don't know if Christianity is shrinking. I feel like um, when I see uh, when I see different religions fighting for their right to meet and things are getting overturned, I don't know. I kind of feel like that's a win. And I don't know. Mm -hmm. It feels a little wrong, but it feels like a win to me. Well, it's, it's interesting. Like We've talked about this on the show before, um, but there is a notion... I think in Christian scholarship that we are in a post-Christian era in the United States of America. And, and by that, I just mean that the era of, of Christendom, which was like when America was firmly a Christian nation, quote unquote, when everyone was Christian, quote unquote, when uh, the, the leaders of the nation were Christian, quote unquote, like that, that era has passed. And that's, that's kind of true. like an assumption. Well, I, I guess the question is, is it? That's the question. Like, it's, it's the assumption is that it is because America as a base is growing less and less conservative evangelical. Well, I mean, didn't Donald Trump like, you know, like bring out the guns and force everybody off so he could prove that he was Christian in St. John's Church? That's right. That's right. But, I, but, Trump, but Trump kind of rode to power on the backs of that notion of like vulnerable evangelicals. And yet yeah. he won. He won. The he Supreme did. Court is overwhelmingly Christian. Um, Congress is overwhelmingly Christian. I would argue that the cases that the Supreme Court is um, 
overseeing in terms of religious freedom, this is what the article argues too, is, is marginally in the favor of, of Christian freedom and Christian religious freedom. So it's like, it's a weird tension where the power structures of America still seem thoroughly Christian in a, in a Christendom sense where they are baptized in Christian language and culture. But the what's culture that, is not necessarily underneath. What's that scripture where it's like, hey, if you're a Christian, write on a headband your Christendom and put it on your forehead and wear it like a banner. What is that? You're, you know this scripture. You're the reverend. <laughs> I don't have any idea what you're talking Come about. Come on. And it's like, wear your Christendom on your forehead. You follow Christ and Jesus. And I... I, dude, I have no idea what you're talking about. You're a pastor. You should know this. Or you're just making up Bible verses. No, <laughs> no it's like Habakkuk or, or... No, one time when I was working with you and I sent this mm-hmm. email out and I got like three people that quit the worship team and then you... I talked to you and I was very frustrated about it and you're like, well, did you like... Are you telling people they did a good job? Or did you just tell them to like wear... Christian them on their forehead and work harder. And I was like, I think I just told them to work harder. Anyway. <laughs> and you're like, oh, that sucks. Thanks, Pastor. Thanks for those encouraging words. But um, I think what you're trying to say is, is Christendom, and maybe everybody knows what you're trying to say, but I, I'm trying to figure it out. Uh, is Christendom getting bigger or is it smaller? And because Congress and all of our leaders claim to be Christian, is the power going more to Christendom or Christian mm-hmm. followers, or is it just not? Are we hiding? Is this coming back to what I just said? Congress and our leaders are mm-hmm. spineless. They are. They won't stand for something. Yeah, I think that's the question, right? Which is like the the institution of of like Christendom, Christian nation, Christian religion still has its grips deep in American power, like like you just named. But I do, it does feel like it's shifting on the ground. And so that creates a fascinating and I think maybe dangerous tension in which is like, what is the, what is the outcome of, especially Christianity in the United States, when it's uh, a group of people, a minority of incredibly powerful people wield the levers of power in a way that seems against the wishes of the vast majority of the American populace. What does mm-hmm. that do? Like, there's no way that ends well uh, for, in the short term, anybody, but in the long term, um, the notion of a Christian nation, which I think is actually also a good thing. So I guess, you know, in that sense, it would be a good thing to end. You know, I think we're seeing that, or we've seen that the last four years. A lot, some of these decisions that our leaders have made and the vast majority of people are going, what, why? Why did you do that? And they're angry mm. and we become more polarized and more hateful and more angry. And, and we believe all the lies that all the media tells us. And I don't know. You're, you're making, it's kind of depressing me, this story, actually. I, I, I just, and if you want to add to this story, there is white Christianity, right? Mm-hmm. There's black Christianity. Mm-hmm. Is that, is that okay to say like black Christianity? There's other Christianity, but like there are some statistics in that article about white Christianity, black Christianity. It reminds me of the mm-hmm. book I was, uh, I've been reading is how to be an anti-racist. And, you know, he was raised with these, um, notions and, and he was programmed with the kind of white Christian values and had a lot, it took him a long time to kind of reprogram out of this, 
white uh, patriarchal, uh, you know, power hungry story of Christianity that is just not the story of yeah. Jesus. It's just not. Yeah. Yeah, that's totally true. Um, How to Be Anti-Racist is a great book. Um, but I, I do, I, you said something like, I want. I think there's an important connection between your statement about like spineless senators and this feeling of, of like losing Christendom, which is, and, and, and how the senators do things that make people angry, which is, I think that there is this myth and the article talks about it of like white Christian vulnerability. And it's a myth in that we still have all the power, but it's not a myth in that white Christianity is shrinking in the United States. And so I think that engenders in the people who have power, a sense of anxiety out of which they act. And so mm. I, I actually don't know that it is quote unquote spineless, but it is, it is a, a, an action to preserve an, a, a historic form of power and the continuity of that power going forward. So they're operating out of a, an attempt to preserve their structures that they believe are good and right. Okay. So you're saying they're like, Oh crap, this is going down and I don't want to lose power and I can't do anything. Be I can't do anything because of my Christianity, but I can do it this way and hide the fact I can hide the fact that I'm Christian because I'm feeling persecuted. Is that what you're saying? No, I think no, no. I, I mean, yes and no, I don't think it's hidden. I think it's, and I don't know that it's that cynical. I think um, like Mitch McConnell or Donald Trump or conservative evangelical voters are voting for these leaders and these leaders are enacting the policies they are and establishing the judicial um, appointments that they are because they believe that it is right mm. and that it is the right way to preserve a good thing. And that good thing is uh, Christendom, the American the myth of American white Christianity, which they believe wow. is good and right. That depresses me because white Christianity <laughs> is white Christianity is failing us. And I think that if, if, if you, if those who are listening think that we are post Christian, it is because white Christianity is failing us. The version of Christianity that gives white men power over people or doesn't fulfill anything deeper than a fancy, exciting song of hope at the beginning and a song of hope at the end, right? Like if, if it gives, it doesn't give you more than that, it's mm. failing us. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't know if we answered the question, is uh, America a Christian nation or is it a post-Christian nation? But I think that the ramifications of having uh, people who are afraid to make choices or are trying to hold on to white Christianity I think that is a problem. They're trying to mm. hold on to the power because of white Christianity. I think we need to think differently. Yeah. Well, I think to answer the question, um, it's both, right? America mm. is still held in the grips of this like white Christendom. Mm. Mm -hmm. And yet it is also unraveling as the base of America, the population of America is more diverse, less religious. Uh, and, the, and the Christianity that it is emerging in the United States and growing in the United States is not traditional white evangelical Christianity, something different. And so there's a conflict ensuing between those two things and an unraveling of the current world order, but it's both, right? Yeah. I feel like that the people that I know 
who are trying to desperately hold on to this idea of this uh, good old days, as Mitch McConnell puts it, this 1940s or you know pre-civil rights white Christianity that they are evil. <laughs> well, I okay, so I I, I don't. I, in so many ways, agree, but I guess I'll push back in this sense, which is that no one, no one, in my opinion, no one is that cynical and no one, Are no they? one thinks of themselves as a villain. Everybody sees themselves as a good guy, meaning, and I think this is actually going to get us to the next article and some of the issues that I have with it. Everybody is a good guy. And so they believe that what they're doing is good and right. Like nobody believes that they're overturning the civil rights. Nobody believes that they are, uh, enacting legislation that suppresses and hurts marginalized communities. They believe that their, their understanding of the world is better, that it's actually better for people. Mm. And I think that's what makes it so dangerous. One, because we're both, both groups or all groups are ideologically fueled to believe that what we're doing is right. But it also gives me empathy, which is like, yeah, I also believe that I'm the good guy. I, you are, you are the good guy. I'm the bad guy in this. No, no, I don't know that, you know, no, everybody is a little bit of both. I think is the issue here. Well, a lot of people think the bad guy is the media and we spend a lot of time talking about the false media or I listen to Fox news. I listen to CNN. Uh, Barack Obama recently suggested that we're going to have to work with the media and with the tech companies to find ways to inform the public better about the issues and to bolster the standards that ensure we can separate truth from fiction. The article I want to talk about today is out of unheard. And the article is titled, when did the media stop telling the truth? And it's interesting because they take this moment in 1945, the the bomb, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and, you know, they covered a lot of the atrocity of that up. The government did. And then a few months later, they invited a bunch of reporters out, including uh, a man by the name of John uh, Hersey. They went out there and he talked to the marginalized while other people were talking to the troops. He talked to some of the people who were dying of radiation poisoning and started writing an article about the atrocities of what an atomic bomb would be. And he was uh, made fun of. He was uh, banned to write. Um, At one point, he invited, he was a very uh, high esteemed reporter. He was not invited to the Pentagon. Um, His stuff was stolen. As a whole, history The United States has done a lot of spin, right? They are just like another government. They spin Mm -hmm. whatever they uh, want to say. They have their own propaganda. Yes, United States, we have our own propaganda. Each president has its own, his own propaganda. Hopefully each president will have her own propaganda one of these days. But um, see how I snuck that in there? Mm -hmm. It's nice. Thanks. Uh, But I, I, I think that the idea here is how can we tell when the when journalists are telling the truth? Mm. And uh, was Obama correct? Was he like, hey, we need to figure out how to actually have the media tell the truth. So how do we regain trust of those who support the opposite side of what we believe, right? Like I'll read the New York Times, I'll read the Houston Chronicles, and I believe a certain side um, in politics, religion, even in music. But how, how do we regain trust? from those people who we don't support because of the media. Because right now, we can't trust the media, can we? 
It's interesting. I I don't know. I don't really believe that the media has that much ability to make us trust itself or one another more. And I, I know that the media is like the favorite. Uh, it's like the favorite thing to attack and to, to make the cause of the disruption and the disunity of the United States. But I think the media is far more a symptom of a much greater uh, issue than, than it is the cause of that issue. Now, maybe it okay, perpetuates so it, but wait I don't think it's the cause. So wait a minute. March. I'm flying home. I look on the news. Pandemic's barely starting. And I see CNN and they're like, will this pandemic mean the end of the world? And you're just like, the language that they're using is incredibly crazy. It's, it's mm -hmm. literally like newsies. It's like, get your papes right here. You know, like they're spinning it so much. Or uh, when somebody died, they're like, of, of coughing to death, they're like, you know, will there be zombies roaming the earth in six months? You're like, oh my gosh, this is the media. This is what, did we create that? Is that what you're saying? Is that the uh, symptom? Well, I guess, yeah. When I, and, I'm not, and I'm not trying to say that like the I like I like the the article talks about this like the use of language and how language is like wielded to make things more like evocative and provocative like I think that's true and I think that's unhelpful but I I think the the larger issue is that there is no central story that all Americans for the most part agree upon anymore mm. and so there is no central truth to agree upon anymore. And so we're asking, we're asking different journalists and different news stations or whatever to report the truth. And I do think the actual question has to be what truth, hmm. because I don't think it's that simple as to say uh, the truth. I know that that's what we want to do, but I think that's reductionistic, reductionistic and unhelpful. What truth is the one that they're supposed to report on? Because the shared truth has unraveled in our culture and we don't have shared assumptions about what is true anymore. I was talking to somebody the other day, maybe I've already said this, but I said, Hey, what, what color is the sky? And they're like, it's blue. I'm like, yeah, it's blue. You're right. Um, now if we're uh, 95,000 feet in the air, what color is the sky? And they're like, well, it's black. I'm like, okay, so it depends on our where we're at in the sky, depending on what color is the sky. Mm. And we got into this huge heated argument about, well, that's just not true. I said, well, the fact is, like, the fact is that when you're at this level, on like sea level, the sky is blue during the day. When you get up in the air, it's it's black. So it's a different color. So I think what you're saying is is uh, important. I think what you're saying is, is true. Like the... Um, we can't have this reductionistic idea of, uh, you know, that, hey, this is truth and nothing else is. But I think that's why journalism often talk about the facts. Here are the facts. The truth, you guys get to decide. We're going to show you the facts. But I think we've even lost that. Yeah, I, I guess I would still press into what I said, though, in that um I, I'm not saying that journalism wasn't better at one moment in time or didn't have a more like simplistic and simple but helpful goal in reporting simply the facts. But I do think that is a more difficult task when, to use your sky illustration, we are all looking at the sky from a vastly different perspective. Hmm. And so like what, 
what is the fact becomes complicated and how the fact instantiates into real life becomes even more complicated. So COVID is a thing, sure. But your perspective on what COVID is, especially in March, like the example you said, really shapes how you believe you're supposed to interpret that fact and what that fact then does in real life, which is what journalism is also reporting on. And so what, where does the fact begin? Where does the interpretation begin? Where does the preference begin? And then where does the instantiation into real life and real culture meet with all of those things and change what is happening, giving it like a narrative structure? You, does that make sense? It does. And I, I think that's where uh, journalists should have a responsibility to use the correct language and not over sensationalize something or, you know, like, how can you just state the facts? I know the sky is different colors, but sure. Can you not stand there and say the sky is blue without any spin sure. on it? Or could you be like, oh, the sky is much more of a chartreuse mixed with teal and colors? And so, okay, so wrong. so here's so here's where I think this is. I agree. So here's an example that I think is tricky. How many people have died from COVID in the United States? A lot. I don't know. So I last time I looked, it was like 236,000, right? That's yep. the number that um, is like generally reported by larger media companies like CNN or MSNBC. But how many of those deaths? Now, I'm not, I'm not offering an opinion that I hold. I just want to say that. How many of those deaths would have occurred regardless of whether or not COVID-19 was a reality. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting question. We've talked about that. Like on a death certificate, you have the cause of death and then the uh, you have up to three causes of death and you have like three, I forgot what they're called, but uh, you know, boxes where you can say this contributed to the death, right? Like uh, someone had leukemia and they contracted COVID. They died of COVID uh, due to complications of leukemia. I've seen way too many death certificates in my life. Um, I don't really want to ever see any more. Um, so you can list up to like seven different uh, mm -hmm. uh, things, which COVID can be one of those causes. Or some guy has pneumonia and he contracts COVID. Well, he died yep. of COVID due to pneumonia. So, so, but that's the, the reason I bring it up as an example is if you're a journalist and you're looking at the facts, well, you actually have a very complicated thing to discern in this moment. Are How you on the side of the journalists? I, 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 I guess I am. I'm, but I'm on the side of, I, I think, a, 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 the, the, I don't think that they are wholly responsible for this issue. Like if you're, if you're looking at that number, 236 or whatever, how do you decide what the fact is? Because the interpretation of the fact determines what the fact is. True. And that's true of, that's true of almost all facts, especially the ones that matter to journalism. The problem is, is that we have journalists now who just want to get their story out. They want it to go viral. So they'll say anything they want. And we as a country, it's, it's literally, this is a fact. Fake news spreads faster than truthful news. And we've created this monster. Like I, I have several friends that I've just unfriended because all they do is perpetuate bullshit news. And I cannot stand it. Like when you go and you search into it, you're like, yeah, I think that we as a people have a responsibility to filter through our news. And I think journalism's also, journalists also share that responsibility to report with correct language and talk to not just the event, but we need to do critical thinking. 
right? We need to do our critical Trump theory, our critical race theory, our critical marginalized theory, our critical black people who can't buy a home theory, our red line theory. We need to talk to those people who are uh, being hurt by this and develop a better sense of what we believe the truth is and not perpetuate the false news. Yes. Yeah. I, I think like there's a lot of things in what you just said that I don't know that I agree with, but I do think the last thing that you said, um, I guess not the most last, but the last section of things that you said is Wait. really true, which is who are you listening to and who is news listening to or like journalists listening to? Um, there was a feminist theorist named Bell Hooks who coined this phrase, um, talking back to tradition, which is that like, that, that our traditions or news is an example of this has a way of, of only telling the story of one perspective, right? Mm -hmm. Of like the perspective of power, this perspective of wealth, or even like the perspective of the event and who like the most central figures of that event were. Those who, that's exactly what you named. You go and interview those. And so then our job as people who are trying to be broader and more spacious in our perspectives and our understandings, our job is to talk back, like a, almost like a disrespectful child to their parents, to talk back to that source of news from the perspective of like the margins or those spaces that are often removed from the story, like allow those voices to question, challenge, and talk back to that story. This is why you're the smart guy. I have nothing much more to say other than you often bring up philosophers. And today I specifically have a philosopher to bring up. He's not French, but uh, I'll leave you with this. He's a Roman philosopher. His name is Plotinus. <laughs> mm -hmm. Maybe it's Plotinius. I don't know, but Plotinus. And I looked him up and he says this, and I quote, truth for whose beauty all their love profess. And yet how many think it ugliness? Well, that ends our episode of Smart Guy, Dumb Guy. Hey, we have a website. <laughs> well, you can find out more about us at smartguydumbguy.com. So go and visit there. You can find stuff about the podcast and more about us. Please subscribe and check our Instagram later. It's pretty cool. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Thanks, everybody. You have been listening to a Smart Guy and a Dumb Guy production, a podcast exploring culture, current events, and politics from both sides of the intellectual spectrum.